This is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester's community-powered news radio show for Friday, July 16th. Coming up... A new report places Rochester in the top 50 worst cities for urban heat. We'll find out what local officials can do to address the problem. Then, we look at how New York State stacks up in a new environmental sustainability report. Plus, we speak with the author of a new book that looks at the history of the black freedom struggle in Rochester. And controversy continues to grip Brighton as some community members push to remove the only black elected official there from a diversity and equity committee. All that and more on this week's edition of Reclaiming the Narrative. For Friday, July 16th, it's time for In Case You Missed It, this week's local news in brief. Rochester's credit rating was upgraded from negative to stable this week by the credit agency Standard & Poor's. SNP says the new stable rating is due to the fact that the Rochester City School District received significant state aid and restructured its finances this year, meaning that the city is unlikely to have to bail the district out in the immediate future. In a statement Thursday, RCSD Superintendent Leslie Myers-Small called the announcement a, quote, significant accomplishment, adding that it, quote, reaffirms the work we have been doing to improve our fiscal stability, end quote. A downtown church has reportedly switched off its anti-homeless noise device following some negative attention in the press this week. On Monday, City News published an article about the so-called mosquito device used by Our Lady of Victory Church to make life unpleasant for anyone hanging around outside their building on Pleasant Street. Neighbors complain the device makes an ear-piercing squeal that impacts their quality of life. Our Lady of Victory has not commented on the controversy, but according to an automated message Thursday, the device has been turned off, at least for now. A 36-year-old man has died after being hit by a sedan on Bay Street Wednesday night. The driver of the sedan was charged with a DWI. Local media has characterized the incident as a, quote, dirt bike crash. However, a witness says the victim's bike was not in motion when it was hit from behind on the street. In the last 10 years, there have been at least 13 injuries and one death among pedestrians and cyclists along Bay Street, according to a crash map compiled by Reconnect Rochester. Earlier this year, Rochester City Council passed a new law increasing fines and fees against dirt bike riders in an attempt to rein in illegal riding. But according to neighbors along Bay Street, they still hear the bikes with some frequency. A second recount of primary election ballots is underway in Monroe County after one candidate filed a lawsuit over the way the first recount was conducted. County Judge Candidate Van White filed a lawsuit last week demanding a hand recount of 33,000 ballots. The local Board of Elections decided to conduct the second recount to avoid more litigation. Officials estimate that it could take a week or more to count the ballots by hand. And finally, a group of 14 Republican State Assembly members have cast themselves as defenders of free enterprise and chicken sandwiches in New York's unfolding Chick-fil-A throughway controversy. In an open letter to the New York Thruway Authority Tuesday, the lawmakers wrote, quote, While some of our colleagues in the state legislature have attempted to recast your decision in an ideological context to advance their own political agendas, rest assured that the decision to add Chick-fil-A has broad public support and has generated excitement among both our constituents and Thruway travelers, end quote. 
The Republican pushback comes after Rochester Area Assemblymember Harry Bronson issued his own letter last week demanding the Thruway Authority drop the chicken chain, which is known for supporting anti-LGBTQ causes. The Thruway Authority has said that it is leaving the decision of which restaurants to allow in the newly renovated rest stops to the private company financing the renovations, Empire State Thruway Partners. In exchange for its $300 million investment, the company gets to keep the bulk of the revenue from the rest stops. And those are some of this week's local headlines. This is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester's Community Power News Radio Show, produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast on WAYO 104.3. I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. Now on to our top stories. A report published Wednesday by Think Tank Climate Central ranked Rochester in the top 50 worst cities for urban heat, stating that the difference in temperature between Rochester City and the surrounding area was an average of 6 degrees Fahrenheit. Our reporter Laura Smith sat down with Climate Central's Director of Climate Science, Andrew Pershing, to discuss the report's finding. The report is called Hot Zones, Urban Heat Islands. What is urban heat? So uh, what we're really looking at are all of the factors that humans do to make the world around us hotter, especially when you have lots of people living together as happens in a city or a town. Uh, so it doesn't have to be in a big city. It can, it can really be anywhere. But the, the factors that we consider uh, are things like uh, changes in the color of the, the, the world around us. Uh, so we often do things like add blacktop roads, which are going to absorb a lot of sunlight. Uh, we cut down trees and build and replace them with buildings and impermeable surfaces. So it changes both. We lose the shading from the trees, but also the kind of the natural moisture in a soil, which can have a cooling effect. And then just by the fact that we have lots of people living close together, people like to run machinery, including our air conditioners. And if you have ever stood by an air conditioner outside, you'll notice how warm they get. So we actually dump a lot of heat into the world around us. Why are they referred to as islands? So islands in the sense that, that there's usually a fairly discrete boundary. Like you can, you can tell when you've walked into a city because it will feel warmer. Uh, so it's an, uh, it's an island like that. So there's an island of heat sitting on the planet because we built the city. And then uh, you can take it even further. There are islands within a city. So you can have an, a part of the city that might have you know, a, lot of, a lot of pavement and a lot of big buildings that's going to be hotter than the park right next to it. And so your report refers to extreme urban heat as a public health threat. What are the potential impacts to health of this heat? So we've seen this so intensely this summer with, uh, with all of the tragedies that have happened, especially in the, in the Northwest this year with the intense heating there, that if you have a community that's not prepared for heat, either because they haven't experienced it in the past, which was a big part of the factor in the Northwest, or, or a community that doesn't have the resources to deal with heat, either because of you know, poorly maintained uh, housing or poor socioeconomic uh, conditions or because of you know, racist housing practices means that there are fewer trees in their neighborhoods, they're gonna experience elevated temperatures and that's gonna put their health at risk. So there's the direct impact of temperature on people's health in terms of your ability to work outside and keep yourself cool while working outside. Uh, but then one of, the, one of the other things that's coming out of a lot of the recent research is that anybody with an underlying health condition, especially things like diabetes or asthma, 
that affect how you breathe or how you process uh, fluids in your body, it's going to be more vulnerable to heat. And often those heat impacts start at lower temperatures than I think we would have thought of in the past. So for a place like, uh, like Rochester and many places in the Northeast, uh, we start to see elevated uh, uh, admissions into the hospital at temperatures of around 85 degrees, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's warm and it's uncomfortable, but I think a lot of us wouldn't say that 85 is, is getting is, is super hot yet. Your report creates an index to evaluate the heat intensity of 159 cities across the US. How did you go about making those evaluations? So we take into account uh, several of these factors that contribute to a, a city storing up heat. Uh, so we look within the city limits and we look at the color of the, of the city. And so that determines how much light, uh, whether it absorbs or reflects the light. So it, if it has a low albedo, it's gonna absorb heat and tend to retain it, especially through the night. We look at the amount of green space. Uh, we look at the amount of imp impermeable surfaces. So pavement and buildings. Uh, we also look at the height of buildings, which is an important factor in a lot of Northeastern cities. Uh, and then we also look at things like the width of streets. And so we have a, a model that takes it, that weights those different factors and allows us to come up with a temperature that is the average additional temperature that you would, that that city uh, or that urban area is experiencing. And, uh, but I think a really important thing is that, is that we're talking about the average of the city and we're talking about temperatures for someplace like Rochester that, uh, you know, that, that are about six degrees Fahrenheit above the, the baseline for that region but there are gonna be places in the city that are gonna be much, much hotter than that. And there'll be places in the city that will be cooler, right next to a park or next to a lake. So that six degree heat difference, how does that compare with other cities in this region? So uh, a number of the upstate New York cities like Rochester, Syracuse and Buffalo are all really close together. Uh, they're in our top 50, uh, top 50 warmest cities. And they have very similar numbers to, to many of the, the Northeastern cities. Uh, which I think you would expect just because many of them were built at a similar time using similar materials, using similar architectural practices. And so they end up with very similar heat index profiles. And what steps can cities like Rochester take to, to mitigate this heat? So I think a, uh, if you, one of the things that I think is really neat about, uh, about our index is that you can go through and you can diagnose, well, what is it that's actually driving the score that a city's receiving? And for many of our Northeastern cities, it's the albedo, uh, it's the color. And so you think about uh, a characteristic Northeastern city, you have blacktop roads, you have tall buildings that often will have an, you know, an asphalt roof, right? All of that dark color is gonna absorb the energy from the sun and it's gonna radiate it back out at night. So a big thing that, you know, that could be considered in the Northeast, you know, are there additional roofing materials? There's a lot of experimenting going on in the architectural community with green roofs where you're actually planting plants on, uh, on rooftops. Uh, and so you get shading, you get insulation, and you also have an additional moisture layer that helps keep the city cool. Uh, reflective roofs or roofs that are, tend to be lighter in color are also gonna help, uh, help cool the city. Uh, there are people talking about different, uh, different materials that will change the color of roadways uh, to help them reflect more light rather than absorbing it. But then I think one of the classic things that you know, humans have been doing forever, ever since we started living in, you know, in high densities is parks. Really, really valuable being able to have access to parks, having access to green space, having trees planted in the neighborhoods around you. And that's something where many of our Northeastern cities that hasn't been distributed equitably across the neighborhoods. 
Andrew Pershing, Director of Climate Science for Climate Central, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. A new scorecard suggests New York has a long way to go to achieve climate goals set into law in 2019. Our reporter Jason Taylor has more in this week's Inequality Index. Is it possible for New York State to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions? Well, it's not just theoretically possible. It's a specific goal set by the New York State Legislature in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act of 2019, which outlines several climate goals for New York to achieve over the next 30 years. While it's helpful to have goals, it's equally as helpful to measure progress towards achieving the goals. According to the New York Public Research Interest Group, the state does not have a transparent and accessible site for citizens to see New York's chances of meeting its climate goals. That's why the Public Research Interest Group recently released its own scorecard on New York's progress towards its climate goals. The findings suggest that there are still large-scale transformations needed to reduce New York's reliance on fossil fuels and expand renewable energy resources, energy efficiency, and public transit and electric vehicles. For example, one of the state's climate goals is for 70% of electricity production to come from renewable sources, such as wind, solar, or hydropower, by 2030. According to the scorecard, New York currently only gets 27% of its electricity from renewable sources. Therefore, in order to achieve the goal, renewable electricity production must increase by around 5% a year over the next decade. The same is true for greenhouse gas emission reductions. The state must reduce its emissions by around 3% a year to reach its 2030 emission goals. While there's still a long way to go to reach many of the state's climate goals, the Public Research Interest Group does say trends point in the right direction when it comes to achieving solar energy production goals. For the effects of human-induced climate change to be mitigated, the Public Research Interest Group urges for the state to make the public aware of its climate goals and to inform them of progress towards achieving the goals so the public can hold elected leaders accountable. You can read the scorecard for yourself at nypirg.org. For Reclaiming the Narrative, I'm Jason Taylor, and this was the Inequality Index from WXIR's Evidence of Design radio show. You're listening to Reclaiming the Narrative, community-powered local news produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast on WAYO 104.3. I'm Vanessa Ryland-Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. 
The town of Brighton continues to roil with controversy stemming from a May 18th Facebook post made by town board member Robin Wilt. Over the last two months, Wilt has faced calls to resign and, most recently, a petition calling for her removal from Brighton's Diversity and Inclusion Committee in response to the Facebook post, which shows Wilt with Palestinian-American activist Linda Sarsour, along with the hashtag FreePalestine. Critics have claimed the post is anti-Semitic, but during a Brighton Town Board meeting Wednesday, over a dozen community members spoke out in Wilt's defense. I know Robin Wilt well. And this here is just it's some nonsense going on. Um, and I just hope we get it straightened out, man, and she don't have to be suffering and going through this anymore. Those condemning Ms. Wilt are basing their attacks on falsehoods and outright lies. Their hysteria has crossed over from honest concern over possible anti-Semitism to real-life racist attacks on the only female black elected official in our town. These people are not fighting anti-Semitism in Brighton. They are using twisted logic and disinformation to instill a false sense of panic in our Jewish neighbors. Robin understands that the people who have been attacking her online do not understand is that saying free Palestine is not inherently anti-Semitic. What Robin understands that the people attacking her online do not understand is that when you liberate black people, when you liberate the Palestinian people, that liberation trickles upward to everyone else. What the people online attacking Robin do not understand is that we are not free until everyone is free. Brighton resident and former Worker Justice Center director Lauren Deutsch has been organizing the public pushback against Wilt through open letters and the creation of a Facebook group where Wilt has been subject to smears. Wearing a Worker Justice Center t-shirt, Deutsch spoke at Wednesday's Brighton Town Board meeting. I want to first of all thank Council Member Wilt, who did talk to me, who came to our virtual town hall as the rest of the town council members did. And I want to say we need to talk more. We need to listen to each other. We need to hear each other's experience and find a way to live together. I'm aware that some of the folks who came out tonight are not Brighton residents. Of course, their feedback is valuable. But at the end of the day, those of us who live next door to each other have to find a way to talk to each other. I'm sure you can hear the tears in my voice. I've lived in this community for about 10 years. I've experienced anti-Jewish racism that was physically violent, that was destruction of property. I've experienced anti-Jewish racism that was subtle, that was ideological. I don't think, I mean, I'll say one of the things that both sides have agreed on and stated vehemently is that there's no place for anti-Semitism and Palestinian rights are human rights. We have agreement on those two things and that's an incredible place to start but we're clearly not there yet because the conversations that we're having, the things that we're saying are about each other and not to each other. The emotional two hour long meeting ended with Robin Wilt herself reading a prepared statement. In all things, but especially when it comes to giving someone the benefit of the doubt that they were well-intentioned in their actions, we're more likely to assume the worst of black people. So without any basis, there were instant accusations that I was a quote-unquote Jew hater, that I support Hamas, that I support Louis Farrakhan, that I wanted Israel eliminated, and on and on and on. I was utterly taken aback by not only the rush to judgment, 
that ensued in the form of quote unquote open letters from people who never bothered to reach out to me, but also the resulting threats to my family, my friends, and myself. I was told that we're not welcome in Brighton, that if I show my face at certain events, I would be harassed. Of all things, someone came onto our property and threw a dead fish into our yard. Never was I given the benefit of the doubt. But people just ran with not only what rumors they heard, but the most vile and damning of those rumors. I, I think it's important to note that I never mentioned Judaism in my posts. I never mentioned Israel. I never mentioned Hamas. The reason I mentioned neither Israel nor Hamas is because my focus is on Palestinian human rights and being in solidarity with the movement for Palestinian human rights. Neither Israel nor Hamas is leading in that charge. The language of the movement for Palestinian human rights is appropriately determined by those at the heart of the movement, not by those powers that are outside of the movement. By the same example, the movement in defense of black lives uses all sorts of chants and slogans that may not be appealing and may even be deemed offensive to those who are not directly impacted and or not in true allyship with that movement. However, it is not for those who are outside of the movement to determine the language of liberation for a movement. You can watch the entire board meeting from this Wednesday online at the Town of Brighton's YouTube channel. Earlier this year, Dr. Laura Warren Hill released a book that examines the history of the black freedom struggle in Rochester. Arts reporter Abby Clark spoke with Dr. Hill to learn more. Joining me on the phone today is Laura Warren Hill. Dr. Hill is an associate professor of history at Bloomfield College and the author of the book Strike the Hammer, The Black Freedom Struggle in Rochester, New York, 1940 to 1970. It was published earlier this year. What led you to write this book? Well, you know, I, I grew up about 90 miles south of Rochester. I did my undergraduate degree at Geneseo. I did my master's degree at um, Brockport. And then I ended up doing my PhD at Binghamton. So I'm kind of something of a New York chauvinist. <laughs> and I lived in and around Rochester for quite some time. And I was very familiar with the story of Frederick Douglass. I was very familiar with the 19th century. But I realized I really knew nothing about the 20th century in Rochester. And so um, an undergraduate advisor of mine, Dr. Emily Crosby, suggested that I look at the city and the uprising that happened there in 1964. And of course, that took me both back in time and, and forward in time. And that's kind of how the book was born. What was the researching process like? Did you speak to community leaders who were activists during those years? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I actually started in the archives. Mm. Uh, I worked at the University of Rochester archive. I worked in the city archive. I was at the Strong Museum. They actually have an incredible archive there as well. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of kind of 
document preparatory work before I started my my oral history. Um, I did interview somewhere around 40 people uh, that were in Rochester at the time. Some of them now live as far away as California and and Indiana, Mm -hmm. uh, but many of them are still there in Rochester. And so before I sort of endeavored to talk to them, I wanted to make sure I had a pretty good handle on the story, Mm -hmm. you know, in broad outline. Where does the title Strike the Hammer come from? It actually comes from a Bob Marley song. Um, the, the The rest of that line is, uh, strike the hammer while the iron is hot. And what I saw folks doing in Rochester was really striking the hammer while that iron was hot from the, the uprising that happened in 1964. There was a kind of organizing frenzy and they the, the activists that were engaged in Rochester really used that to their advantage and forced some major concessions from, you know, the Kodak company and then really brought Xerox to the table to work with them as well. Mm-hmm. So as you just kind of touched upon, we know that Rochester was one of the first cities in the nation to experience an urban rebellion in 1964. Can you talk about where Rochester fits within the national picture of the Black freedom struggle of the 1960s? Yeah, sure. You know, in some ways, Rochester was a little late to the civil rights movement game. And that wasn't because there weren't activists there trying to do the work. There absolutely were. It's just that the black population in Rochester was so small at that point that it was virtually impossible for them to engage in some of the other strategies that were taking place around the country, things like boycotts. Um, There just simply weren't enough black folks in Rochester to really do that. Mm The other thing was that the uh, NAACP in Rochester was really headed by uh, a number of well-meaning white folks at the time. And so it wasn't really a black organization. And what they were doing was was sort of supporting the movements that were taking place in the South rather than really looking in their own backyard at what problems existed in Rochester. And so, you know, you do see some some activity primarily around police brutality Mm -hmm. in, and I would say, 1962 and 1963. Um, And then the uprising happens in in 1964. And it's really kind of that organizing frenzy that takes place afterwards that that not only sort of pushes the civil rights movement to the fore in Rochester, but but also kind of forces the city into that transition to black power and some of the black power strategies and ideologies. Can you describe what the political climate was like in Rochester in the 1960s, particularly for educators and artists? Sure. I mean, I think one of the one of the important things to know, and I don't spend a lot of time about this in in the book, is that the Rochester City School District was intensely segregated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Walter Cooper did a, um, he undertook a serious research project and was able to demonstrate that that segregation in the city schools was as bad as or worse than New Rochelle, where of course that kind of cutting edge um, case took place. Mm. So. The segregation was was absolutely part of what was going on. Um, in in terms of arts and culture, I would really say folks in Rochester at this point weren't immune to arts arts and culture. But in the 1960s, they were really focused on jobs and economic opportunity, mm-hmm. and it was it was because they had been cut out of the economic scene in Rochester for so long. Is there anything that surprised you or challenged your assumptions about this period in Rochester? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that really didn't fit with the narrative that I had learned um, was the relationship between the black community, particularly the NAACP and the Nation of Islam, you know, in part because Rochester was so small, in part because, you know, people had come up together. There was very little friction between those organizations, mm-hmm. um, you know, not at all like you would see on the national scene. I was also really, really kind of blown away by the black power stance that many of the black ministers in the community sort of took on. That was really different than what we were seeing in a lot of other cities, particularly Mm. as early as 1964. What lessons does the black freedom struggle from the 20th century hold for us as a society today? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that absolutely everything they were facing in the 20th century, um, African-Americans in Rochester are still facing. Police brutality has um, has not abetted. In fact, I think it's um, worse now than it was then. Mm -hmm. School segregation is still a problem and jobs that that pay a living wage are still a problem. And so because these conditions are relentless, we have to be relentless in, in fighting against them. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming onto Art Blooms and sharing more about your book with our listeners. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Dr. Laura Warren Hill on her book, Strike the Hammer, The Black Freedom Struggle in Rochester, New York, 1940 to 1970. And that does it for this week's show. Our reporters this week were Laura Smith and Jason Taylor. Abby Clark is our feature contributor. I'm Darian Lehman. And I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. If you'd like to get involved and join our volunteer news team, you can send us a message at wxirnews at gmail.com. We want to thank you for supporting community-powered local news produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast by our friends at WAYO 104.3. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourselves. And each other. Have a great weekend.